Since the start of civilization, humans have used their natural curiosity to explore learning through the use of play. From chess to checkers and now Minecraft, we've seen the world of games become a technological playground of creativity and innovation. Video games are bringing people together and the classroom is certainly not exempt. We work with some really wonderful teachers that are creative, that use these tools in, in history courses, geography courses, language arts. It's really tools to tell stories in new ways. I bet you didn't think you were learning anything while playing Fortnite, but while you parachute into Lazy Lake, your brain is working in ways that you couldn't even imagine. And so the fact that playing these types of action shooter games led people to be better at the shooter games and also a host of things that don't look anything like shooter games that are more kind of basic tests of cognitive and perceptual abilities was actually a really surprising outcome. In this episode, we're going to take you on a journey to explore many ways in which we learn through playing and how video games and a playful approach to learning are being used in more classrooms everywhere. Tons of kids are playing video games, it doesn't, and it could be any game. It doesn't have to be Fortnite. It doesn't have. It could be Candy Crush. It could be whatever it is. So to incorporate those things into your instruction is only going to make it better. Welcome to Learning Through Play, a bonus episode of the Gaming for Good series, brought to you by Salesforce.org. The thing that underpins all of it is this playful approach. Kids love to play. It's part and parcel of who they are as human beings. It's part of parcel of who we are as adults, as human beings. I'm Shay Thompson, presenter, games enthusiast, and all around nerd. I grew up in a very transitional period of digital technology. I had the internet, but had to wait for my mother to finish her phone call before I could continue my very important MSN chats. Mom, are you finishing the phone yet? Online gaming had only just started to peek its head around the corner with the recent emergence of Xbox Live. I've always loved games and spent hours in these fictional worlds, be it trying to perfect my combos in Street Fighter or uncovering political conspiracy theories in Metal Gear Solid 2. I tried to take this same level of enthusiasm to school, but didn't always respond well to traditional methods of learning. In fact, my love of games sat diametrically opposed to my schooling experiences. Have things changed since then? In a word, yes, in many ways. And it's down to people like Shanila Saeed. She spent 14 years teaching and is now the director of UK-based Digital Schoolhouse, a non-profit organisation supported by the gaming industry. The programme sort of recruits schoolhouses across the country and we provide them with training and they in turn deliver workshops for other schools within their local community. So it works a bit on a sort of hub cluster style model. And we try to interweave industry expertise in a variety of different forms throughout that entire process. So everything from informing the training that we provide our lead teachers to influencing the structure and the content of the resources that we produce. It's around using that wonderful sense of play to impart knowledge for students. We teach programming through dance and we design activities that use things like Lego and Play-Doh and all sorts of stuff. Ten-year-old me is like, 
sort of jealous because I would have loved to have had that, you know, just to sort of feel seen by like the adults who are like, right, okay, this isn't just like a niche little hobby. Like this is something that, you know, we're going to take seriously and we're really going to nurture that interest and that passion in you guys. So one of the programs you run at Digital Schoolhouse is called Unplugged. Can you tell us what it is and what it does? So Unplugged Computing is where you are teaching a computing concept without using a computer at all, introducing a concept through dance or Play-Doh or Lego bricks or a magic trick. If you think about dance, a dance is very carefully choreographed sequence of steps and to the point where you could give each step a name and you can put that into a sequence or you could write those down as instructions. You could use almost pictograms to illustrate each move or you could use words and then you say what order these words are going to go in and whether you know a certain move is repeated three times and how that pattern goes and all of that actually is an algorithm. It's interesting because just using the medium of dance, we can introduce concepts like procedures and subroutines, naming conventions, variables, the whole works. Because it's very physical and very interactive and very tangible, it makes a lot of those very abstract concepts Mm. that can be quite hard to grasp very easy and it will come naturally to children. As a working class kid myself, I was always super conscious of not having the latest clothes or toys. I know that feeling has only been made worse nowadays by how much tech young people seem to have. Unplugged is a fantastic way of opening up a world of play that doesn't require tech. We recognise that, you know, not everybody has the same level of tech. Not even all schools have the same level of tech. And I think the problems are worst hit where you've got schools potentially in more disadvantaged areas that have less funding. So the problem we face then is you have children who do not have access to appropriate tech at home and then are coming to school and don't have appropriate access to tech at school. That is the beauty of Unplugged in that we've had schools that have wanted to join the programme and said, we're really concerned because we don't have the latest tech. And I said, do you have pencils and paper? Could you source some Play-Doh? Do you have a working printer? And they're like, yeah, yes, of course, yes, of course. And you can use the internet browser well. It's like, yep, then you can do digital school hours. And Shanila is never off duty, testing games that might be good in the classroom. Have you been playing anything over lockdown? Yeah, I've been getting to grips with Animal Crossing. I've been, yeah, just doing it for a bit of where is where is the learning in this actually what did you find yeah no it's fascinating actually i think there's lots of different things because there's sort of dealing with finances and empathy and the way you treat and behave with other people it's various little things like that but it's also really interesting about just kind of watching that decision making process and where am i going to do this am i going to build that there's things like kind of learning and crafting and actually what's been really valuable for me actually is which I wouldn't necessarily have gleaned just from playing myself, is allowing my daughters to kind of take over a little bit and then watching them interact because they're now on two residents on the same island. It is those interactions and those decisions they will make about leaving gifts and where are you going to place your tent, for example, was a, was a huge discussion. And I just sort of realised that actually, if you think about that, start translating that to potentially a classroom, then actually 
you could have quite a discussion about where are you all going to place your tents because what does that then do to the landscape of this part of the island? So one of the digital schoolhouse lessons teaches binary coding. Sounds pretty standard, right? Here's the twist. The entire lesson takes place in Super Mario Maker. For those unfamiliar, Super Mario Maker is a game creation take on the highly popular platforming series. If you've ever played any of the Super Mario games growing up and somehow wanted to make them harder, then this is the game for you. I'm also very concerned about your well-being. Those games were already quite difficult. Estelle Ashman is the curriculum content developer for Digital Schoolhouse. So, I am Luigi and you're Mario. Okay, so this course is the like the simplest option. So this initially the idea was that we'd do something quite basic where they would come up with their own design for a level. So they would do like paper-based designs and things like that and then move on to actually designing a level within the software. Decimal number is the number of one. Because we do a lot of stuff in Digital Schoolhouse which is unplugged, that kind of then meant I could quite easily make the leap into what could I use to represent ones and zeros in Mario Maker. I brought Mario over and I'm going to... I'm going to jump and hit the second box? Yep. From the left? So that would be... that would represent a four. By teaching binaries through oh, using yeah. something like Super Mario Maker, you're not only just teaching the binary skills in themselves you're also teaching them how to design the different levels so they, they learn about the idea of designing something then testing it then using the sort of evaluation of that testing to then go back into the design again I mean, it's sort of a rapid application development model which is used in industry for actually creating software oh oh my goodness so i just made life very hard for myself so if we go into this tunnel now yeah. i should be able to get the second coin Yay! amazing so I've completed it. Brilliant. So I'm running along, rubbing the flag, and that's me done. Yay! Completed. In a million years, I never would have imagined learning binary, let alone in such an accessible way. I didn't know it at the time, but when I was young, my fascination with games came from a place of curiosity and a desire to learn. How did games work? What makes Mario jump? How am I able to make Sonic collect these rings? Most importantly, could I make my own Mario or Sonic game? Those questions never got the answers I needed. But I wonder, if my love of gaming had been embraced by my teachers and the curriculum, would I have been making games as opposed to just playing and talking about them? As the world moves more and more into the digital realm, the ways in which we educate need to reflect that. So it's crucial we arm young people with all the tools they need. Enter Epic, the gaming giants behind the global sensation that is Fortnite. You could be forgiven for not realising they're also creators of a host of digital tools that are transforming the creative industries, such as Unreal Engine, which began life as a games engine, but is now used in a variety of applications, from architecture to car design and in movies like Star Wars. Linda Selheim is education leader at Epic Games, so she can build those bridges between education and industry. 
we know new skills are needed. And, you know, it's it's hard for faculty, at, you take it at a college level all the way down to a secondary level, to really know what's going on in the industry. Where at Epic, we have a front row seat to like, all of the things people are doing with these tools. And the Unreal Engine is a creator's tool. It is no different than when we look at Photoshop 25 years ago, only high-end professionals used it and graphic designers, where now everyone uses this tool. And really, that's sort of the 2D age. And you look at going into the immersive economy and the 3D age, you look at a tool like the Unreal Engine, Fortnite Creative, even Twin Motion. Quixel, these are tools to tell stories. So these stories go across all the industries and there is so much interesting work being done in automotive and aerospace, advertising, fashion, all around immersive interactive 3D content. And there's the AEC world, architecture, engineering and construction. And I think it's important for students to know, particularly in, in the high school years, like have exposure to these tools and know what's going on because they're being influenced, they're thinking about their careers. And the really cool and exciting thing is this generation's grown up on games, so they understand what interactive 3D is. And I think when they learn these tools and they take them out, we have no idea what kind of amazing things they'll do in another 10 years. I mean, you didn't see, you didn't think of game engines 15, 20 years ago as being a tool for architecture. And now it's pretty commonplace. So I think it's a really exciting time to be at Epic working in education. When I talk about interactive 3D, I always think that, you know, this is going to be a part of everyone's life, whether you're a consumer, whether you're directing it, whether you're creating it, just like mobile, be, you know, became part of everyone's life. So that's one reason it's important. It's also engaging to work with. We work with some really wonderful teachers that are creative. I mean, that use these tools in, in history courses, geography courses, language arts. It's really tools to tell stories in new ways. So think about being able to do your homework in Fortnite Creative or Unreal Engine, just like you would choose to maybe use PowerPoint or, you know, Photoshop or a video tool, you would choose to use this interactive 3D tool. Our goal here is to have educators understand this. They also have a mega grant program. They've committed $100 million to support students, educators and tool developers. One of the recipients is Steve Isaacs, a game design development teacher based in New Jersey. Steve received a grant to work on curriculum. He has an interesting story because his students actually petitioned the principal to use Fortnite Creative in the classroom. Dear Ms. Hudak, we are students in Mr. Isaac's period four game design class and we have received the task of creating our very own game for our final project. Mr. Isaac said we could use the tool of our choice like Minecraft. So my students Twice. probably spent a few days drafting this letter with some support from me, but I really wanted it to come from them. That's Steve Isaacs. They sent the letter to our principal, and, and I was a little bit nervous that the initial thought would be, oh no, you know, Fortnite or whatnot. But my principal, who always surprises me in a positive way, understood from what the kids were saying, really embraced the fact that they were asking. Thank you for your consideration. Sincerely, Harrison in the period for game design and development class. 
that started us on a quite a, a run because now for the last few years, we've been using Fortnite Creative pretty extensively in class for a number of projects. And I love the fact that you sort of like championed it and like really empowered them to feel confident enough to appeal to the administrators. So once you've got permission, could you tell me how exactly you use Fortnite Creative in the classroom? I teach game design and development. So in my case, a lot of the projects students can choose are there's the opportunity to create mini games. So I wrote a lesson plan for Epic that was actually having kids create a Rube Goldberg machine in Fortnite Creative which is really fantastic because there's not a single need for a weapon or anything. The kids are completely engaged in the whole idea of like learning how to use the devices and automate things within the game. And it really shows the broad scope of how Fortnite could be used in a variety of content areas. Yeah, blows my mind a little bit, like how much, <laughs> yeah, how much scope there is. There really is. Could you talk about a specific instance where you used Fortnite and like game-based learning and help to bridge social gaps and facilitate collaborations between some of your students? Fortnite Creative supports it so beautifully and far beyond the mere fact that people could be in the game together. Fortnite is cross-platform and everything's cloud-based, so it actually lends so perfectly to collaborations to actually engage other people in this process. Even during this time of social distancing and being home from school, kids had no problem continuing to work collaboratively. A lot of the things we've heard about so far are technical or about learning code and designing 3D worlds. But there are other important and surprising developmental benefits that Steve has seen in his classroom, social and emotional. I had one boy who was autistic who did want to work in a team but was not, you know, really capable of reaching out socially to make that happen. So I, you know, announced to the class that he was interested in working with the group and he had really tremendous skills when it came to the automation and the triggers and things. And I said, you know, is there a group that would like to work with him because he, he's very, you know, capable at all that and would be great. And a group of two girls that were working together immediately both raised their hands. And it was one of these great things because they were comfortable with the idea of the layout and design, and they knew what they wanted to do in some ways with their game, but they knew that they needed support in this area. So this boy joined their group, and then it was just so neat to see them communicating and seeing him kind of guiding them a lot of times saying, you know, I need you to do this because I'm going to automate it here, but I need you to build this. I think gaming often bridges that gap, whether it be a kid with a specific learning need or even kids who just might be the quieter kids that you don't see really going out of their way to share their work, all of a sudden, you know, we're meeting them in their world. And, you know, this perks them up a lot about saying, wow, this is something I can do. This is something I can do well. In terms of the Epic Mega Grant that you were awarded, what exactly has that enabled you to do in your classroom in terms of like preparing these kids to sort of make themselves ready and marketable for the workplace? When it comes to career and technical education and job readiness, you know, we need to have kids working in authentic tools that are like real world, you know, industry standard tools. So the Mega Grant, the way I framed it and wrote it was it's called Scalable Game Design from Fortnite Creative to Unreal Engine. I feel like any kid that in middle school or high school can get proficient with Unreal Engine. I mean, that 
right out of school, they're marketable. It obviously helps that you're familiar with games since, you know, you play them, you've been immersed in that world for ages and ages. And we've yeah. just heard about like a specific game in the classroom. But I'd love to know like how you gamify your lessons in other ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My course is quest-based. I use a platform called Classcraft. And within that, I can create quests. And as kids complete quests, it unlocks additional quests in the system. And as they finish one, and then when that's accepted, then it unlocks the next quest in that line. If it's not accepted, then I give them feedback and they improve upon it. If they fail to do certain things, they might lose hit points. And that's sort of the little warning sign where there could be consequences based on that. But again, it keeps it in a game context. What's so neat about it too is with the quest part, and this doesn't work, you know, if some kids do it differently, but the kids that are a little more competitive, they want to complete quest after quest after quest because they just want to keep leveling up like, you know, a game. Is this something that you think could be crossed over into any kind of class? It doesn't necessarily have to be like tech. Oh yeah, absolutely. So in fact, that's the neat thing. So the gamified part, teachers in every content area use Classcraft and run their course that way. I just happen to do both because my course happens to be based on games and I also chose to gamify it. Lifelong learning is something that you're sort of passionate and interested in. Like, why is that important? Like the joy of learning for the sake of learning? What a wonderful question. So honestly, I love learning. You know, it, 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 when I have the time, I'm going to dig into things that I'm interested in and want to learn. For me, it happens to be very related to what I teach. Thank goodness. I think as educators, if we could help kids find and nurture their passion for whatever it is, then we're teaching them you know, how to learn, which is far more important than teaching them how to, you know, memorize content for a test, right? Yeah, I almost like high-fived my my inner child because I, yeah, <laughs> like that, that note, especially about like not teaching kids to just like memorize a whole bunch of facts or how to pass tests and, you know, actually sort of encouraging that, um, yeah, that passion for learning. I think it is all about the mindset. I, you know, I've really carved my path and I hope that that lets other people see that that's possible because I think it's very easy to get stuck in thinking we have to do it this way, we have to cover this curriculum exactly this way. But I think there are certain things like student choice and student voice that if we leverage those in any content area, we could you know at least break from the mold a, a little bit where it's still, we might still have somewhat traditional learning, but give kids a way to be more engaged. For some students in the classroom, it can be hard to visualise concepts and ideas, especially when the lesson is so dependent on that. When I was younger, conjuring up a visual image in my head of ancient Egypt or the Middle Ages felt impossible. I was disciplined for this because teachers couldn't see it from my perspective. There is power in meeting people where they are. Someone who knows this very well is social studies teacher from Delaware, Katie Wright. She embraced her students' passion for Fortnite and incorporated it into her history lessons. We were actually doing a medieval castles project. So we were studying medieval Europe, specifically uh, England at the time, actually. And we were recreating castles and Fortnite Creative had just come out. And a student of mine said to me, can I build my castle on Fortnite? And without thinking of whether or not there would be a consequence, I said, yeah, sure, why not? 
And then I realized, well, I should probably ask somebody if that's okay. So emailed his parents. Parents said, that's great. And then his mom actually emailed me back and said, I can't believe how into it. He spent six, seven hours just going through every single bit of creative to figure out what exactly he needed and how to do it and how to recreate the castle that he said he was going to make. So it was really cool. It was just because I said yes to a kid that Fortnite kind of came into my life. And the more that kids started getting into it and the more that they wanted to use it, I just really tried to figure out ways to incorporate it more and more. See, I I love the idea of you saying yes. Like, you know, you didn't patronize him about like something that he's really passionate about. You said yes, and that opened up like this world of possibilities for him. That's brilliant. So what kind of learning did it promote with this one kid and the rest of your class? It's a whole new level of them engaging and cooperating and communicating with one another that they don't get when they're sitting there and working on a worksheet. And it doesn't matter what your content is because gaming brings out Sometimes the worst, but mostly the best because they want to work together. They all have a common goal. We have to problem solve. We have to work together. We actually have to agree on something in order to make this what it needs to be. It gives them the skill of communication and then at times compassion. I know it's a weird thing to say like gaming can give compassion, but because you have to communicate with one another, you have to be compassionate towards others' points because you're not going to agree on everything. But at the end of the day, you have to solve whatever problems in front of you. And the communication Katie mentions extends beyond the classroom. Because of the fact that kids were using Fortnite at home and parents could see what they were doing, it opened the conversation of, well, what exactly are you doing? (laughs) Like, what does this have to do with seventh grade social studies? It really made me think of like, this isn't necessarily restricted to the classroom as much as it is to kind of build those relationships between a parent and child. Because, you know, kids come home, they get on a video game and you don't see your child for the rest of the night. But now it's a conversation of, well, what exactly are you doing? And why is this homework? I love that because like, yeah, for me, learning should be like a sort of exchange of, you know, ideas as opposed to it just being like this static experience. Right. Did you find that like, you know, the students that you teach sort of taught you things in return? You know, was it like a reactive experience with you? Yes. I think of myself as somebody who's tech literate. And yet these kids are just completely schooling me on how to use Fortnite because I have no idea what I'm doing. It was really cool to hear them talk in their language. And I think it really builds confidence when they can teach a teacher something because, you know, oftentimes they're like, oh, teacher knows everything. But in this moment, I know nothing. So you need to teach me, which was really fun. You have to be willing to take a risk and understand that it's going to take time. It took a really long time for me to figure out how to do it and do it right. And I'm still learning. I'm still figuring it out. Tons of kids are playing video games. It doesn't, and it could be any game. It doesn't have to be Fortnite. It doesn't have, it could be Candy Crush. It could be whatever it is. They're playing games. They're doing some kind of video game. So to incorporate those things into your instruction is only going to make it better. If I sat down and thought about like the hardest points of my career, they were all times where I was like afraid to fail. Like that that fear sort of paralyzed me in a way. Um, And it stopped me from achieving a lot. Um, Do you think that we sort of coddle kids? And I'm not saying that we need to like throw them to the (laughs) walls, but more that like, you know, do we need to do a better job of like preparing them for life's ills? One of which being failure. You have to be willing to fail and be okay with failing and being seen as well, that did not work and it may never work, but let's give it a shot. 
This idea of failure and being, it's okay to fail and it's okay to take these risks. Because I mean, you do that in video games, right? Like kids fail multiple times in video games. Like you lose a match, you die, you come right back, right? Like you get an opportunity, you always get opportunities to redo it. I remember like in school, it was always ingrained in me. If you fail, you're not going to be able to go to uni. You're going to get a terrible yeah. job and then you'll never go anywhere in life. And I was like, this is so much to put on a 13 year old. This is terrible. Um, so yeah. yeah, no, that... no, I mean, I grew up the same way. Yeah. I'm like, you're going to go to college. And if you fail, if you fail sixth grade, you will never go to college. And it's like, oh my God, oh my God, you're right if I fail but I mean it's not true that's not that is not how the real world works because we all are in jobs right now we've all failed at some point in our job and yet we still have one so I think it's really important for kids to see that <sighs> right time to take a break and play a game It might sound contradictory, but one of my favourite ways to unwind is to drop into a blitz-ravaged Rotterdam and defend my fellow squadmates from the unrelenting artillery fire. No, I haven't just teleported back into 1939. I am, of course, talking about playing Battlefield 5. Released in 2018, the game focuses on World War II and the untold stories of various soldiers. I wasn't someone who played many first-person shooters at the time of release, but my job at the time, which was playing Xbox games for eight hours a day, meant I had no choice. I needed to adapt. That ability to adapt and overcome are just some of the ways that games impact our brains without us even realising. Someone that knows all about the effects of video games on the brain is Dr. Sean Green, Associate Professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. The kind of broad interest of my lab is how do we train people's perceptual and cognitive abilities for the better? How do we improve perception and cognition? What we've seen is that playing action, first-person shooter video games seems to produce kind of broad benefits in perceptual and cognitive skills in a way that the more sterile tasks just always fail to produce. You know, it produces benefits not just on playing the game itself, but on things that don't look anything like the first-person shooter games, things that we think of as more core measures of visual attention or multitasking or task switching. Um, sorry, I feel like I got you killed there. I'll take the blame for that. No, no, it's um, fine. I messed up and I was like, I'm just, I'm just going to let him keep talking because I already messed this up really badly. Sorry. I, 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 I was like both like, should I talk about the science or should I, should I warn her that there's two guys right there? Um, <laughs> what are some of the surprising things that you found? It was somewhat surprising that, you know, these games were beneficial at all. Right? It was a time when video games were still a little bit it was a little bit of a niche activity. There was lots of popular media articles about how you know it rots your brain, these types of things. And so the fact that there were really positive effects on perception and cognition was, you know, itself surprising in the beginning. In particular, because the effects are broad. You know, it's kind of well known in the kind of domain of learning that it's easy to get people to become good at individual tasks. What's harder is for that learning to then generalize to something else. And so, for instance, there's research showing that playing lots and lots of Tetris, you'll get very good at Tetris, but you don't necessarily get good at just generally mentally rotating objects, right? And so the fact that playing these types of action shooter games 
led people to be better at the shooter games and also a host of things that don't look anything like shooter games that are more kind of basic tests of cognitive and perceptual abilities was actually a really surprising outcome. And so one thing that's nice about these games is that because there's a lot of variety, there's always a new mission or, you know, increasingly people are playing with other human beings that are adaptive. Um, it kind of keeps the demand on the perceptual and cognitive systems. The demand that games can have on the perceptual and cognitive systems in our brains can have a lasting impact on the way we learn. The reward system is is incredibly important for the motivation to continue playing, right? Like to put in persistent effort. The number one predictor of learning is just time on task. Like, you know, if all the principles of learning, more time on task equals more learning. One thing that those of us in cognitive neuroscience find interesting about games is that there's also a really strong link between the reward system and plasticity. I always tell my students that the adult brain, at least, kind of doesn't want to learn anything at all, right? Like, you know, it's already has a ton of experience. It doesn't really want to change in response to small amounts of experience. It kind of thinks there's a staple set to the world. And, you know, learning has a cost associated with it, say, in terms of metabolism. You have to synthesize proteins. You have to kind of change neural connections. And so one kind of thing that the, the brain uses as a cue that there's something that's worth learning is the activation of the reward system, right? Like this is something that I want to get. It's worth improving. And, you know, that's often a problem for things that people are trying to learn is that they're not inherently rewarding. Um, and so it's both difficult to put in motivated effort and also brain's just going to be less plastic. So we think one reason that this type of game is particularly powerful is that it's simultaneously putting load on all these systems while activating the reward system and saying, you should be in a plastic state. It's actually worth improving the system to gain these rewards. Plasticity is usually pretty temporarily titrated to the reward activation, right? So while you're playing the game, the reward system is really activated. It puts you in the state where you're really capable of learning from the game. I think the real world implications are often in you know places where we want people to learn. We're not activating the reward system, right? Like, you know, the, the prototypical example is like school settings, right? School can be a little bit dry. There's not a huge motivating factor. And so that's going to have the brain be in a less plastic state, right? You know, if you're actively working towards tangible rewards, um, the system's going to be more plastic than if there's no obvious reward associated with the actions. Um, and so it's one reason why people have tried to, say, uh, gamify certain educational kind of tools, right? Where they try to kind of build on the success of games as learning tools in those contexts. But often what they've created is what uh, we often call chocolate-covered broccoli, where, you know, they try to dress not that fun stuff up in this, like, veneer of a video game. And by and large, those just don't end up working that well. They don't actually end up being motivating. So how to capture the rewarding and motivating aspects of video games in other contexts where we want people to learn is a really key challenge for the field. It's safe to say that game-based learning has come a long way. No longer do games and learning sit opposed to each other. They can now be integrated seamlessly to create engaging learning experiences. As we've heard, the cognitive and developmental effects are undeniable. We're all different in the way that we approach things, 
But I think what will be crucial in the future is fully embracing that instinctive inclination to both play and learn. Unlocking that potential, you just got to find the right key, but it's not the same key for every child because we're all unique and distinct as human beings. So you just got to find what works for children, what, what makes them tick. And, you know, as educators, then it's our job to use that in the classroom. The thing that underpins all of it is this playful approach. Kids love to play. It's part and parcel of who they are as human beings. It's part of parcel of who we are as adults. This has been Learning Through Play, part of the Gaming for Good series, brought to you by Salesforce.org. To find out more about this series, head to the Salesforce.org Gaming for Good webpage. Learning Through Play was presented by me, Shay Thompson. It's a Sounds Fancy and Fieldwork production, written and researched by Shay Thompson and Curtis and Simon James. Our executive producer is Chris Paling, production support by Jim Stevenson, music by Neil Hale and Simon James. This documentary has been brought to you by Salesforce.org.